This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. How is climate change increasing the risk of a mega flood and how will this affect civil engineers? I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I'll be talking with Dr. Daniel Swain, a climate scientist focused on the dynamics and impacts of extreme events, including droughts, floods, storms, and wildfires. And we're going to talk about the warming planet. Daniel holds joint appointments as a research scientist within UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability a research fellow in the Capacity Center for Climate and Weather Extremes at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and is the California Climate Fellow at the Nature Conservancy. In this episode, he's going to talk about climate change and the intersection between extreme weather and climate in different contexts that can affect civil engineers going forward. Before we get started here, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it free. So now I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI's reputation and history sets them apart. PPI has helped engineers achieve their licensing goals since 1975. Their courses and review materials are based on decades of experience. They schedule their courses over two to three months to ensure you can properly retain information and allow enough time for homework. They ensure students don't have to cram for their exam. Their courses come with everything you need. They offer robust programs with access to lectures, forums, learning hub, books, slides, and more. Their programs place a big emphasis on homework. They believe that practicing as much as possible is crucial to exam success. PPI's instructors are very highly rated on student surveys. They are extremely attentive and knowledgeable. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. Again, that's ppi2pass.com. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'd like to welcome on our guests for today's show, Dr. Daniel Swain. Daniel is a climate scientist focused on the dynamics and impacts of extreme events, droughts, floods, storms wildfires, obviously things that are all important to us as civil engineering professionals. Daniel, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks for having me. In your own words, Daniel, maybe you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about your career journey up to date and what it is you do on a daily basis. I'm a climate scientist, but that actually means different things to different climate scientists and in different contexts. So in my case, what it essentially means is I am more or less a very applied physicist. So I think about the actual fluid motions of the atmosphere from an atmospheric science and meteorology perspective, but applying it to longer timescales and the kinds of questions that we really deal with in climate science. 
which is really obviously the same physical processes that you would say in meteorology or in weather prediction, but on longer timescales and often using somewhat different assumptions than you would for, say, predicting short-term weather. So my background is actually in atmospheric science. I sometimes joke that I'm a bit of a reformed meteorologist, but it really does inform my perspective on climate science because I really have a very weather-centric perspective. Sometimes you hear in the news or somewhere else that you can't conflate weather and climate. And while that's true, I think that sometimes we draw too bright a line between these two things because really, you know, it's it's all the fluid motions of the atmosphere on different timescales. And so climate is nothing but weather in aggregate. That sort of informs my perspective on extremes because extremes are really episodic bursts of high impact, high intensity climate, if you will, once you start looking at them over time and space. So my perspective is as this climate scientist who really thinks a lot about the weather, despite being a climate scientist. And we found you, Daniel, through an article that you co-authored entitled Climate Change is Increasing the Risk of a California Mega Flood that contains some in-depth research, of course, about this risk of a mega flood in California. Can you just talk a little bit about the article and why our listeners, civil engineers who are constantly designing for storms, should be aware of this and how it might affect the civil engineering industry going forward? You may have seen some media discussions of this article because it got a lot of attention when it came out about a month ago, earlier this summer. And really the work itself is inspired by or based on a part of a broader project called ArcStorm 2.0. And it's possible that some listeners may have actually heard of the original ArcStorm 1.0 scenario, which was sort of a disaster contingency, disaster management um, scenario that was designed by the U.S. Geological Survey and a bunch of other entities focused on the risk of a really large catastrophic California flood. The inspiration for this is the fact that back in 1862, there was a weeks or even months-long sequence of extreme storms in California that dropped way more precipitation than anything we've seen in a more modern context, since we've really had modern water infrastructure, big cities, major transportation infrastructure, all of the stuff that we associate with having 40 million people today in California weren't there in the 1860s when there were fewer than half a million people living in this part of the world. We haven't had a modern recurrence of an extremely severe widespread flood event like that in the era since we've designed and built all of this infrastructure. And so that actually was one of the motivations for doing ArcStorm 1, which is that, well, you know, what the heck would happen in this modern context with everything being built up the way that it is? How much would the flood control infrastructure mitigate things versus just simply not be able to contain the magnitude? Because again, we're talking about something that is far greater than anything that occurred in the real world in the 20th century. Our new version of this project, ArcStorm 2.0, really seeks to update it since the original was done about 11 or 12 years ago. It did not include anything about climate change back in the original envisioning of the project. And there have also been a lot of advances in meteorology and climate science modeling tools and analysis since then. So we really wanted to go about this, revamp it for the 21st century climate realizing that the 21st century climate is different than the 20th century climate, and it's going to continue to be more different as we move forward through the century and as conditions continue to warm. And so essentially what we did is we, to develop the first stage of this ArcStorm 2.0 project, which is what's described in this paper that came out this summer, we wanted to create two really extreme storm scenarios, not necessarily the worst 
case scenario, not necessarily the absolute worst thing you could possibly physically envision, but something that is up there with the plausible worst case that we might actually experience in the not too distant future. So explicitly something that is relevant to public policy and engineering planning time horizon, something that we really do need to be able to withstand because there's a decent chance it's going to happen within the lifespan of existing infrastructure. Essentially, what we did is we coupled climate models, so these mathematical process-based physical models of the atmosphere over long periods of time, with high-resolution weather models. The same kinds of models, but really targeted more at capturing fine-scale phenomena and the short timescale processes. And so we sort of connected these together, came up with a couple of multi-week sequences of extreme storms, one that's plausible today in California's current climate, and one that would be plausible a few decades from now in a much warmer climate, ran those through and see what they really looked at what they looked like, how much rain would fall, how much runoff would there be. And we also looked at the role of climate change, how much more likely would an event like this be for, say, one degree Celsius of global mean warming? We've already blown past that. So also two degrees and three degrees and four degrees, since we don't know exactly where we're going to end up on that warming spectrum. And so what we found is that, indeed, these reports of seeing upwards even of 100 inches of rain in some parts of California, especially in the mountains, over the course of a 30-day period in that 1860s event is highly plausible because that is what these physical models spit out for contemporary potential mega floods in California, and that the risks increase considerably with each degree of global warming. In fact, we found that the warming we've seen so far has probably already doubled the risk. But the challenge here, the caveat, is that this risk has been increasing quietly and latently in the background. California, of course, is, is experiencing a severe drought. The Colorado River Basin is experiencing what's called a mega drought. So no one's really thinking about flood risk right now. This is one of the challenges, is really talking about, especially from a practical perspective, what are the, the rising hazards of something that we can't actually see increase over time steadily? We kind of have to rely on these physical modeling tools to estimate how much the risk has increased because... We're talking about events that inherently have recurrence intervals of at least 80 to 150 years. So over a 50-year period, we shouldn't have expected to see it even in a warming climate. But that may be changing in a warming climate. And so this is something that has probably gone from something that could have happened in our own, you know, in the course of an individual human lifetime, but probably wouldn't, to something that now, statistically, I would bet a lot of money that we're going to experience an event of this magnitude in my own lifetime. For civil engineers, I mean, you know, when we do our stormwater design, it changes from region to region or state to state. In a lot of areas, you're held to like a hundred year storm that you have to design for should that happen. Now, I don't know if you have a years associated with this mega flood, but I mean, we're talking about, I would imagine something that is, it may not be that rare anymore in the future. I guess that's another thing that has to be considered. A hundred year storm, what used to be a hundred year storm isn't a hundred year storm anymore. But is there anything from the research that suggests like how often something like this potentially could happen? Yeah, that's something we take a look at. And of course, there's always significant uncertainties when it comes to estimating the likelihood of recurrence interval of really rare events that we don't have good observational constraints for. So of course, one reviewer question is, how do you know how well these models represent the two or 400 year flood? And the answer is, we can't quantify that directly because we don't actually know what the two or 400 year flood is because we've never measured it. We don't have a long enough period of record to formally assess that. So the best that we can do is say, okay, well, let's assess it for the most extreme 
events that we plausibly have good empirical observations of, which are much less, if it's good enough for those, and it's a physical model, so it's not a statistical model, so the physics shouldn't be changing for the highest of, you know, the largest events, the physics should be the same. So if you're using a physical model that you know is good for somewhat lesser events, you kind of hope that it's still good for the greater events, at least more than you might trust a statistical extreme value kind of extrapolation analysis there. That's sort of where we are. But yes, we are able to make some of these estimates. And so for the historical present era kind of flood event or megastorm event, I guess, since we're really looking at the meteorology first, what we found is that in the 20th century, the kind of event we're looking at is about an 80 to 100 year recurrence interval. So it is right in that range that you're talking about. It's no longer a 100-year recurrence interval, and this is sort of what we found about the doubling, is it's probably more like a 50-year recurrence interval already. That is how much the risk has increased. Of course, a 50-year event is still pretty rare, but it is twice as frequent as a 100-year event. And so, you know, that's a pretty big thing. The future event has no historical analog. So we could not find, even in the climate model large ensemble, which is a much larger sample size than the actual observed 20th century, we couldn't find anything that even remotely approached what the plausible future event looked like in a warmer climate. So that was essentially novel. And what we found that in the future climate, if you adjust your baseline to be, okay, how rare is it, you know, 30 or 40 years from now when it's much warmer, we found that it's more like still like a two or 250 year event. So that's really extreme event even in the future climate. But we really wanted to bookend this with an event that is something that we really need to be thinking about right now because it could very well happen in the next couple of decades. That's sort of that formerly 100-year event that's now a 50-year event. But also really be a little bit more circumspect about what the true worst-case scenarios might be because a lot of these design storms, you know, the th- or if we're talking about the thousand-year storm or something like that, these are based on pretty uncertain extrapolations based importantly on 20th century climate. And we, do know, we don't have that 20th century climate. And it turns out that it's already making a pretty big difference in these risk estimates. That probably shouldn't be too surprising if you think about the thermodynamics, even if you kind of ignore all these complicated models and uh, these climate models and these weather model couplings and all of that, it really boils down to, at its essence, one pretty basic thing, which is that the water vapor holding capacity of the atmosphere increases exponentially for a linear warming. So our warming is more or less, it's been linear. We've warmed a little over a degree centigrade so far. May not sound like a lot, but that translates into an almost essentially 10% increase already in the water vapor holding capacity of the atmosphere. And because that is an exponential function, that is compound growth. Each further degree of warming is a larger absolute increment of, of increase in the water vapor holding capacity of the atmosphere. And so that just means with each additional degree of warming, the degree to which the intensity of precipitation can potentially increase is larger with each passing fraction of a degree. And so that means, you know, as we get closer to two degrees of global mean warming in the next few decades, it's not just seven to 10 percent. All of a sudden, it's more like 20 percent or even more in terms of increase, you know, in, in the ceiling on how intense precipitation can potentially become. And in fact, in some cases, that ceiling rises even faster than that seven percent for the most intense thunderstorm downpours. So these kinds of flash flood events we've seen a lot of this summer, we've seen all these news stories all around the country about 500 or 1,000 year floods in X city in North America over and over and over again. 
those are precisely the type of events that actually might increase at an even greater rate than 7% per degree of warming. Those might increase more like 10 to 14% per degree of warming. And all of a sudden, that turns into a huge increase once you get to even just two degrees of global mean warming. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, the non-stationarity of our hydroclimate, I think, has really been kind of underestimated as a hazard when it comes to thinking about designing, you know, pieces of critical infrastructure, it's one thing if it's a culvert, right, which you have designed to saying, well, if you get a big enough rain event, it's going to overflow anyway. But if you're talking about really critical infrastructure like dams or life protection levees or things like that, this really becomes a, a critically important part of the math there. And a lot of the structures that are built today, of course, I mean, we didn't know about this really 50 or 60 years ago when a lot of these things were built, or in some cases for the big dams, even longer ago than that. So we have all these structures that, you know, were designed to a particular standard, and that may have been a reasonable standard at the time. But the problem is, it probably isn't a reasonable standard anymore in a lot of cases. The big consideration for civil engineering professionals that are in stormwater design is how much rain you get over a certain period of time, of course, right? If you get an inch over a day, it's different than if you get an inch in an hour. In the direction we're headed, those could become much greater, you know, a greater amount of rainfall in a smaller amount of time, which again then puts that stress on this infrastructure that wasn't necessarily designed for that. Of course, most of our physical infrastructure, as you mentioned, was built for a 20th century climate and the early 21st century climate is substantially different and it's going to continue to become different. So what are some of the implications for infrastructure design or reconstruction that civil engineers and others involved in that should be aware of? That's one of the tricky parts because, you know, as we've been talking about, a lot of this stuff is already built. You know, the concrete's there, it's serving its its purpose in society, and it's not going to go away anytime soon. You know, we don't rebuild dams and bridges and levees all the time. I mean, once they're built, they're designed to last a long time. And so there's one question about retrofitting and about, you know, assessing safety margins on some of these structures. It's something that really came to mind in California uh, during the Oroville Dam crisis. Obviously, that wasn't exclusively precipitated by a historically unprecedented extreme event. I mean, it was a fairly extreme rainfall event, but it was not the design storm. It was not something that was wildly beyond 20th century safety margins should have been able to accommodate it. But of course, the problem was that a relatively minor unforeseen problem on that dam's primary spillway, like a crack in the concrete, suddenly cascaded because it happened at a time when they needed to be releasing a lot of water. And so they released the water. And of course, water did its thing and massively eroded that cracked concrete spillway. And then all of a sudden, you no longer had a primary spillway. And so then the big storm came. The problem was the sequencing is that all of a sudden, then you had a huge amount of inflow that you couldn't flush the water out in the primary spillway. Then you get to a problem. They don't want one of the tallest dams in the Northern Hemisphere to be overtopped, obviously. And so they had to let the water go over the somewhat euphemistically termed emergency spillway. But here's where things got interesting from the engineering perspective. That emergency spillway was just a dirt hill on the side of the dam, unreinforced and with lots of vegetation and dirt on top of it. Essentially, they, it had never really been foreseen that it would ever be needed. They said, well, if we ever get to this unforeseeable point, we'll just throw some water over the edge. But don't worry, we're never going to get there. 
And it didn't even take an unprecedented storm to get there. It just took a sort of a, a relatively boring minor concrete issue to then necessitate the use of this emergency spillway. Massive headward erosion resulted, as you might expect, with lots of water going over a dirt hill. And they almost lost the top 20 feet of that structure. Had it continued just another 100 yards or so, there would have been a 20 or 30 foot wall of water heading down the canyon into the Central Valley. And so there's this frenzied emergency evacuation of a quarter million people that was unsuccessful, essentially. Had there been a failure of this structure, a lot of people still would have been in the floodplain when this 20 or 30 foot wall of water came downstream. Fortunately, it didn't happen. This is just one example of how a lot of the kinds of infrastructure that we assume you know, is up to the task. It's not just a question of if it theoretically performs optimally under extreme conditions. It's, well, under extreme conditions, it's precisely when you expect some things perhaps to not behave as you would expect. And so if you get a couple of compounding failures, even if they're small, and then you add a 20 or 30% larger storm than you had planned for on top of that, what happens? And so that's an example of critical existing infrastructure that perhaps really wasn't designed to accommodate the kinds of events that we're expecting to see. The what if question is what if that storm had been 20 or 30 years from now with you know an additional 10 or 15% of water? We honestly think the outcome would have been different and that might have made the decisive difference between a catastrophic failure and one that was ended up ultimately more manageable. So that's existing infrastructure. With new infrastructure, I think there's no excuse because we know this is happening and we have to be including this in design processes. But of course, that's easier said than done because what do we actually include? Are you just looking at observations, you know, up to the present? like, okay, well, we know there's been some climate change. Let's include, you know, the last 20 or 30 years and let's include that climate change information. That's one way that it's done. Or do you use projections of what climate change should have been up to this point? Or do you look forward? And how much more climate change you think there's going to be? And then how do you assess this data? Because it actually turns out to be a very non-trivial task, even for climate scientists, how to interpret some of this data. California is another great example of this because it's a place where the average precipitation really isn't changing. So you hear all this, you know, about these increases in extreme drought and extreme wildfire, and we're just talking about increases in extreme flood risk, and yet the mean value of the quantity that's relevant in all these things hasn't shifted very much and isn't expected to. So you got to be really circumspect about how you analyze the data. What you're analyzing turns out to be really important. You can't look at the mean value to infer changes in extremes. And maybe that sounds obvious to an engineering audience, but I don't think it is obvious in all circles. In fact, we see a lot of analyses. I mean, I review a lot of things where people have done precisely that in life-critical settings. And so this is where I think the rubber hits the road and where there really needs to be a lot of collaboration between folks who are thinking about the details here. What does changing climate actually mean for the extreme events that test infrastructure? Because it's a very different question than what happens in the, the mean climate as it shifts. Um, I'm sure our infrastructure can mostly withstand the mean changes. It's really a question of, can it handle the extreme changes? As a licensed professional engineer, I mean, often what we do is we design whatever we're designing to a certain standard. That's a government standard, agency standard. For example, if we design a dam, you know, we're designing it based on whatever that agency jurisdictions, what they're telling us to do. However, based on some of the research, these guidelines obviously could be outdated. They're probably not up to date. And so I would say it's a bit of a tricky situation for engineers and firm leaders going forward because you want to always put the health and safety of the public first. You have a responsibility or licensed professional to do that. But at the same time, you can only go off of the information that's available to you. 
What advice could you offer to like engineering firms, leaders, design professionals in terms of when they're working on a project that has lives at stake? Is there anything that they can do, any information that they can seek that could help them when the what's available or what the rules are may not necessarily be adequate? That's a really good question. And it's actually a question that I've gotten a lot, not just from engineers, but in other circles too, you know, public policy, anyone who's trying to use climate change data to make important decisions in some context. Civil engineering certainly falls into that category. And I think one of the challenges is that the way a lot of this data is presented is very opaque, and I would argue sometimes very poor. And I've seen a lot of, you know, misuse and abuse of climate model projection data, frankly. I mean, more often than not, I would argue that when this data is applied to specific problems, often it's miscontextualized or somebody, you know, makes the mistake, for example, of conflating changes in the mean with changes in extremes, possibly because it's the only change factor that is presented in the finalized published data set. That is part of the problem is that a lot of the underlying data in these things is not very easy to access or easy to interpret. And so the safest thing is to actually have conversations with folks in the climate world who have actually thought about how not to misuse this data and sort of and what the caveats are. What's the best way to make sense of the data that are available and how to use it optimally to get an honest assessment of, you know, of what the risks are or are not in a given context? It's really hard to do this internally. I mean, it's like a full-time job just to keep track of how to interpret some of these data sets. So it's, we've kind of gotten to this point where, where big data and, the, and just the inherent complexity of the kinds of modeling exercises that are done in the climate world make it difficult for outsiders to interpret sometimes. And I think both frustrating, but also kind of unavoidable in the context of that's just the nature of the data. I do think it would be, and this is something else that I spend a lot of time on. I mean, in addition to research is science communication, doing a lot of public facing science communication work is that communicating sort of these caveats and uncertainties, not throwing our hands up and saying, oh, it's, we can't do anything with anything. We don't know the answer, but actually being quantitative and saying, okay, here's the best available information. Here's what we think is happening. Here's where we're not totally sure about it. And here's what I would recommend how you move forward. What's the safest way to make the fewest unnecessary risks? And I think that being honest about these things and being willing to have those conversations among, I mean, on the climate side is also really important. I think historically there's been a lot of, let's throw this data out there and surely it'll get interpreted correctly kind of philosophy, which of course is not the case. The collaboration is really important there. Um, even if it's, it's on a somewhat minimal basis, just to say, hey, does this methodology that we're planning to do, does this make sense? Is there something obviously wrong with this? Even that is something where you could potentially get a lot of value from a relatively brief interaction with someone, because I think those gut checks, they may not be intuitive if you haven't spent decades living and breathing climate data, but it might be fairly easy to sort of give a thumbs up or thumbs down if you spend a lot of time doing that already. From a legal perspective, I know that there are certainly laws and such that cover engineering professionals should a 200-year storm occur, let's say, and they were only required to design for the 100-year. But that being said, I mean, you still obviously want to protect people at all costs. And, you know, you don't just want to say, hey, well, whatever, that wasn't my responsibility. You know, I'm safe type of thing. And so is there an organization or a database or like if I'm an engineer and I'm doing design, I'm in California, I'm in Texas. Is there somewhere that you could go to try to find some of this information? Obviously, your research was out there. That's what we found. 
But is there like a one resource or someone that like collects this information if someone wanted to look at it and see some of the forecasting that's been done? That's the problem. And the answer essentially is no, there is no uniform clearinghouse. And that is one of the problems. Who gets to decide what the 200 year event is? It turns out you ask two meteorologists, two climate scientists, you can get two wildly different answers. Like literally, if it's as simple a question as for the one hour precipitation in this location, what is the 200 year recurrence value? And depending on your philosophy and what you choose to incorporate with that, you can get very different answers. And so what this means is that in contexts where there are official databases, like, for example, the NOAA Precipitation Atlas is one ostensible clearinghouse that a lot of folks use to determine the intensity, duration kinds of curves. One of the problems with this is that it's empirically based. They just base this on the data that we've seen so far. And so 90% of the data is from the 20th century still. And so it has some new data years in it. But if you're doing statistical fits to models that include mostly data from a climate that no longer exists, is it accurate? Also, beyond that, you know, and this is sort of my philosophy as a climate modeler, even if we magically had statistical models where you could get a 200-year estimate just from the last 10 or 20 years of data or something, so it'd be more up to date, then the question is, are the events that we actually observed in a particular location representative, whether it's over 30 years or 100 years, of the full range of things that actually could have occurred during that period? And this is sort of a, it seems like an esoteric point, but it actually ends up being really critical Sometimes folks will make estimates about the influence of climate change by saying, okay, let's take the 20th century climate and let's just add 20% to the big extremes. Like, let's just say repeating pattern, but then the magnitude is higher. It's better than doing nothing. But the problem with that kind of approach and the issue with the statistical fits that you get out of using historical data is not only that the climate has shifted in its mean state, which it has, but it's also that in any given period of time, we may not have necessarily seen the particular sequence of weather events that could generate the theoretical maximum. So it's not just in the 20th century, we must have seen the, the storm patterns you know, that would cause the biggest floods, but now climate change is just adding more moisture to those same storm patterns. We might also be seeing different storm patterns. And it might not even be due to climate change. It might just be because we happen not to see these particular sequences of events in the observational period. And this is one of the reasons that why we, you know, increasingly as climate scientists use what are known as large ensembles. So we don't just perturb the models moving forward and get different branching possible futures based on uncertainties about how things might change moving forward. We also do that about the past. So we don't assume that the 20th century observations are the only thing that could have happened in the 20th century. We say, okay, what else might have happened in the 20th century? Is it possible that what we actually observed was an unlikely iteration of what could have happened in the 20th century. And so we run these climate models not just multiple times for the future using slightly different assumptions, but also multiple times for the past. And what we end up getting in many cases is the fact that we could have seen very different sequences of weather, even absent climate change, just in the 20th century because of the natural variability of the climate system. The reason I'm getting a little bit into the weeds here is to say that when we use these, to the extent that there are these clearinghouses like the NOAA Precipitation Atlas, or um, there may be other databases in other realms that are similar to that for other variables, we're relying on the fact not only that the observed climate is not changing over time, which we know isn't true, but we're also relying on the fact that what we actually observe during whatever period is used to derive those estimates was fully representative of the, of the entire plausible range of things that could have occurred 
from a sequence of weather perspective, which it turns out also isn't true. It's really hard to develop these databases and these clearinghouses and these standardized things. That's one of the reasons why they don't really exist is that there is so much uncertainty. And so that's where it it gets really tricky. I know there's a lot of private startups out there that are trying to do this for insurance and reinsurance companies because there aren't good estimates and a lot of folks don't trust them, the ones that do exist, for pretty good reasons. And so there's a lot of interesting science going on right now about how to rectify this. But right now, there isn't really a database or a table that you can pull up and fully have confidence in it, I think. I think that's one lesson is that this is really a hard problem and requires sort of case-by-case assessments. So if you are a practicing civil engineer, you do a lot of stormwater work or hydraulic analysis, I guess you should keep a heartbeat on what's going on with that because it sounds like there are organizations trying to establish it. They're not there yet, but I would imagine that if something like that can be done in the future, it's going to be very beneficial to making sure that your modeling going forward can be a little bit more future, looking at the future as opposed to just some of the codes that have been around for a long time that you could be looking at a hundred year storm from 20, 30 years ago, which we already know based on what Daniel's telling us has changed. It's just a matter of figuring out how much that has actually changed. Daniel, just to switch it up a little bit here, you have a unusual or interesting role, which is supported by UCLA, the Nature Conservancy and NCAR that allows you to be a practicing scientist communicator. So what does a practicing scientist communicator do? Tell us about the role, why it exists, and and why it's kind of rare, because I've never heard of it before. I don't have any teaching responsibilities. I have uh, the kinds of uh, research duties that you'd expect uh, for an academic scientist, essentially. And so I produce that peer-reviewed research, and there's the, the pressure's always on to publish or perish. But the other half of my job, and it really is, at this point, fully half of my job, is to do a lot of public-facing science communications surrounding climate and extremes and disasters and all of these sort of related things, you know, fire, floods, wildfires, just about anything you can think of in that realm. And what that means in practice is anything from briefing members of Congress on a short notice basis to writing popular science pieces for Outside Magazine or something or blog posts or doing lots of media interviews. At this point, I I do around 150 media interviews a year. So on average, you know, one every other day or so. And then sometimes in bursts, you know, like when there's a lot of interest in some episodic event, I kind of drop the science to really dive into the public communication side of things. And I'll do maybe 30 or 40 interviews in a week or something. And so that'll essentially become the full-time job. In doing all of this, the goal is I'm not just talking about my own work. It would get pretty boring if I was just talking about my own work uh, that much. But it's really to contextualize lots of different things, whether there's a particular extreme event that's occurred somewhere in the world that's had a high impact, breaking it down, talking about the, the societal and the climate change context of it. You know, why did it happen? Why was it worse here than, than somewhere else? What are the climate change considerations? If there's a really newsy new piece of research in some other climate adjacent field, I may talk about that. If there's a big public policy decision, you know, if there's a national or state level legislation that's just been proposed or has been signed and is becoming law, um, that's another kind of topic. And so all of these things, they take up a lot of time. I mean, this is not something that can be done as is often done in the sciences, you know, nights and weekends. A lot of supervisors, a lot of institutions are saying, yeah, that's great. Don't quit your day job. 
well, this has become a significant part of my day job. And the fact that it is explicitly part of my role with UCLA and these other institutions is that it actually means that I can do that at a level and with a sustained focus that you just can't do. I mean, it's one thing to talk about your own work when a journalist wants to give you a call, and that's important too. But I think that what we really need are more science contextualizers. I mean, we've seen this during the pandemic, right? Where there's so much uncertainty and misinformation out there. And like, even as a professional scientist communicator, but in a different field, honestly, it's difficult to navigate that pandemic information landscape. I mean, even now we're two and a half years into it. And mostly I trust a handful of excellent pandemic scientist communicators. There's a handful of virologists and public health scientists out there that I personally rely on to get sort of that, to cut through the noise because there's just so much of it. I try and fulfill that role in the climate side of things. But it's hard because institutions don't really support it. I think we've moved away from them actively disincentivizing it for the most part. I mean, it used to be severely frowned upon. God forbid scientists seem like they're human in the public eye. Or worse, God forbid you don't just work on research that you're funded by grants to do. But I actually think that that has certainly changed. On the other hand, there isn't a whole lot of institutional support for it. So it's like, yeah, go for it. You still got to do everything else you're supposed to be doing. And so that's the problem is there's only so many hours in the day. And so that's where I'm fortunate to have the role that I do, where the institutions that I'm supported by actively say, yeah, this is valuable. You should be doing this. And this is part of your job in addition to the research. And so that's sort of what's so unusual about this kind of role. I think it's great that the scientific community is getting behind a position like this. I think it's something I wish in civil engineering we could do more of. We could have more civil engineering communicators, quite frankly, because anytime something happens, like we had recently a building collapse in Florida, there was also a pedestrian bridge a few years ago in Florida, people have questions. People don't understand. There's a crack in the building, then they think the building's going to collapse potentially. So I think it's great that the community is embracing a position like this because it is really important both for that professional community and also just for citizens in general to be able to have that gateway between. So that's really awesome. So we're just going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and we're going to wrap up with Daniel with a couple of last career-related questions. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. We're back with Dr. Daniel Swain, climate scientist, who's focused on the dynamics and impacts of extreme events. And we've had a lot of talk about climate change and how civil engineering professionals should be aware of it and how it might affect us. But now we're going to wrap up here and just switch it up a little bit and throw a couple of career questions at Daniel. So Daniel, first question for you, are there any specific rituals that you practice every day, maybe a morning routine, a lunchtime routine, or just something that you do consistently that helps you to accomplish your professional goals? It's kind of funny. When I saw this question in the queue, my initial thought was, wow, I really don't have any rituals. And maybe it's partly because of this role that I have professionally that I mentioned, which requires a huge amount of flexibility and a very large amount of day-to-day variability in schedule and sort of what I'm doing. I actually call it the Swiss cheese schedule, where I'm constantly busy, but often not until the last minute. I let my schedule have lots of holes in it and then fill them in at the last second, because that's often what's needed if you're doing public engagement. A lot of these are last minute requests. And so to be able to accommodate them requires that Swiss cheese schedule. So I'm not so sure that I have any particular rituals in any regular sense like that. I know a lot of folks really rely on that. And perhaps it would be a good thing. But I think in my case, the answer is, is largely no. 
What about for like your research though, or when you're doing research or writing, do you have to then at that point block out something? I would imagine you would, but. That is true. And so I think it's, I guess in a temporal sense, they're irregular, but yes, I mean, I, what I do when I need to get research done and I'm kind of in one of those moments this month, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, okay, these are days where I'm not going to be doing any interviews. These are days where I'm not going to be writing any blog posts or doing any popular science articles. I need to sort of buckle down and write some code or write a paper or plot some figure, whatever it is that task at hand is. And so uh, context switching, sometimes I'm just switching back and forth hour to hour. But that's it's difficult, as you know, to do deep work in that context. So for deep work, I do dedicate individual days to doing you know, the research, the analysis, those kinds of things. Because yes, it is difficult to flip hour by hour from doing a TV interview to writing code that needs to be exactly correct. All right. How about books in your career? Is there sometimes we read a book or two that like, you know, we always remember it. We always go back to it that helped us. Anything for you specifically or? I read a lot of, of uh, nonfiction that is vaguely historical. So not history, but the applied history in the water space or in the climate space or in the wildfire space. How did different events evolve episodically? So even things like, for example, I mean, this if for any water engineers, you know, Cadillac Desert, for example, is a really seminal work for the Western U.S. at least. And that's not a technical manual by any means. There's no equations in there. But I think you learn a lot about not just the way that the climate works and the way that the hydrology works and the way that human systems interact with these things, but also a lot of the points of failure where we have really tried to, in some cases, succeeded wildly, but in other cases, failed to sort of manage nature, manage water in the way that we wanted to at the time. So that's just one example of the kind of things. I like context. I feel like a big part of my job is providing context and deeply contextualizing new things as they emerge in the world of climate and in the context of society. And so when I find books that do that well, that contextualize the natural world with respect to society or the environment or whatever contextualization is the focus of that work. Those are the kinds of things that I find really helpful because it makes it easier for me to talk about these things as someone who is a domain expert in in climate, but I'm not a historian, I'm not a hydrologist, and I'm not an engineer, but it's helpful to be fluent in these things. And so how do you get there? Well, it's Obviously, it's partly by interacting with folks who are experts uh, on a one-on-one basis in these areas, but it's also through these kinds of readings where you can get a much better sense of context without having to necessarily spend half a career of deeply engaging. You can sort of take advantage of someone else's deep engagement with that kind of thing. That's great. No, I like that a lot because I think a lot of times we deal with numbers Numbers are important, but like you said, it can be dry to try to explain things to someone. So anytime we could put context around it, stories around it is valuable. I think it's the same for scientists and engineers for sure. In terms of your career, if you've had a manager or supervisor, someone you've had to look up to, if you think of them in terms of your favorite managers, what made them your favorites? What we try to uncover here is, you know, what makes a good leader, a good manager in the technical fields? from your experience? And I know it may be different than a practicing engineer, but certainly you might have some thoughts. I've been pretty fortunate 
I've had some really good uh, interactions with a lot of my supervisors over the years. I mean, really starting with my PhD advisor at Stanford, who really ran a, a great research group, not just technically in terms of the science, although that, you know, it, it was great in that regard, but also in terms of sort of shaping and honing skills that I, and I think other folks, I think arguably in the same group, didn't really know that they had. I mean, I was not big into science communication before I was about halfway through my PhD. And that was almost by accident. It was almost happenstance where there, you know, it happened to be, there was a big drought in California. And so there was an opportunity to do something that was very topically relevant, you know, choosing like, okay, what's next? And then it just sort of, there was a suggestion, should we do something topically relevant? Like, yes, let's just do it. And so that just sort of spurred a lot of things. And so Having someone who was not only accommodating of my science communication proclivities, but really, really encouraging of it was, I mean, that, that, that was a really important first step. So having a great PhD advisor was an important milestone there. And then when I was, you know, doing my postdoc at UCLA, I had some real powerful advocates for the kind of role, the unusual role that I've described. One of my direct supervisors, who was the director of the Environmental Institute at the time at UCLA, in which I was embedded, has a, a reputation for being a, a bit of a maverick and a bomb thrower in his own ecological circles. We worked well together, and that really helped me a lot because in this context, he was willing to go out on a limb and take a risk and say, let's create this new kind of job description out of the ether. Let's create something that doesn't really exist and that there isn't really a model for and see how it works. And he's no longer the institute director, but that's the job I still have today. And so really that was mainly only possible because it was a really strong personal and professional advocate for me doing something kind of unusual. That involves a fair bit of trust. I mean, it could have been hypothetically a massive failure, right? I mean, it's an experimental thing. Could have crashed and burned. It didn't, which is fantastic. But I think having those kinds of personal advocates who are willing to take a bit of a risk in both of those contexts, I've really benefited from that. And I'm grateful for that because now it means that I kind of get to do unusual things, at least in, in the academic science context. And, you know, I think it's been a pretty wild success. I mean, in the context of achieving the goals that we stated, you know, at the outset, and there was no guarantee of that. So I think that folks deserve credit for supporting people and, and taking risks and trusting them, you know, at the outset. Our last question, we call it the career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a young technical professional, just maybe starting out their career based on everything you've learned so far, if you had 30 to 40 seconds with him or her, what career advice might you give them? It's really it's be open to unexpected opportunities because that's really my entire career trajectory is I had a certain singular focus, but these specific opportunities that led me to actually be able to get there were not the ones I would have expected in terms of which jobs I said yes to, where I ended up geographically, in what order. It was not what I necessarily would have predicted, but it ended up working out. And so I think that had I been a little less circumspect about that, maybe it wouldn't have happened if I had been really more rigid about that order. So I think that being open to things, it's not always easy to predict what doors will open from which opportunities. And so saying yes to a lot of them seems to be a good way to go. Well, Daniel, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. We really appreciate you talking a little bit about climate change and how that might affect what we do as civil engineers and for also sharing a little bit about your career journey. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks again.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Daniel. I know it's a little bit different than what we typically cover on these episodes. However, we wanted to bring him in. I actually saw his research on one of the national news networks, and I thought it was really interesting as a civil engineer myself, because we do need to consider these things, as I mentioned in the episode. Yes, we go by the guidelines, and that's important, and we can be kind of held harmless from some of these things. But at the end of the day, our job is to protect people. And if storms are larger than they used to be, we need to account for that somehow. And I hope that there is a database that becomes available that we can lean on to help us to make sure that our designs are as accurate as they need to be to be safe for everyone involved. Please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.